Um, so again, uh, thank you to us and all the, the organizers, and thank you to, to all of you for coming out to, to the panel. Um, so my own view is that uh, this book, Traces of History, is really a landmark achievement in the study of racial formation. And it's an absolutely kind of fitting capstone to what was a decade plus um, worth of work in, in Patrick's own scholarly career. And I think what I'll do for my time is just sort of highlight what I take to be four really central contributions of the book. And I'll, I'll leave it there and we can talk some more about it in, in question and answer. Um, so the first contribution, I think, is the way in which Patrick's work here deals with two really kind of defining ways of thinking about race, race, uh, racialization um, in both the domestic American um, political context, but more, more globally. And uh, I apologize for the way in which this is kind of imposing a, a schematic that doesn't do justice to the complexity of these various positions. We can think of one approach to racialization, racial formation, as really framed around the idea that race is, as a category, something that is trans-historical. So it's a product of the Enlightenment, it's a central logic of modernity itself, and it persists as a kind of continuous feature from the dawn of the Enlightenment to the present. And the central kind of terms of racialization here is sort of a constitutive anti-blackness that's part of what it means to be a modern. Um, the strongest, let's say, the versions of these arguments are today associated with a body of scholars that are often collectively referred to as Afro-pessimists. That's one way of thinking about racialization, racial formation. Um, let's say the other extreme is a way of thinking of racialization, racial formation that we associate with various types of Marxian class analyses. In the US, probably the most well-known version of this comes from Edmund Morgan and Morgan's famous book, uh, American Slavery, American Freedom. And this is the idea that essentially in the 17th century in the US, but you can map this on in different contexts, that um, there's a problem of labor management, of how to maintain something like a pliable labor supply. And that enslavement, especially the importation of African slaves, and through the importation of African slaves, the construction of the category of race becomes a way of solving a class problem or class predicament. So that there's a material condition that leads to the rise of racialization, and it's tied to an essential class predicament to begin with. Both of these are arguments in their, let's say, extreme or strong form that have real weaknesses. So like the classic critique of constitutive anti-blackness and the trans-historical quality of race has been, well, wait a second, this doesn't seem to be a pliable way of making sense of change, of discontinuity, and it also seems to undercut the potential for transformation, something that's kind of permanent, and we're left with the pessimism in the Afro-pessimism frame. The classic problem for the Marxian analysis is the way in which it seems to reduce race ultimately to a class category. And so there's an issue of can you actually think of the complexity and persistence of race as something that's beyond these initial material problems when it comes to labor. And what Patrick's book does in a really remarkable way is it synthesizes the insights in both of these perspectives and creates something profoundly new out of it that can talk about race as a central logic of modernity and yet can also think through these questions of transformation and complexity. And just very quickly, at the broadest theoretical level, the argument that Patrick makes <clears throat> is that we shouldn't locate you know, race 
and racialization in the history of prejudice. So that there's a long-standing history of prejudice, of demonology of various groups. He refers to, for example, Judeophobia that marked like the Middle Ages and medieval thinking in Europe. But that race as a relevant site for investigation is really the product of colonialism. This is the idea of like race as colonialism speaking. And it's something that emerges in the late 18th century, and it emerges because of the transformation. Well, there's a question about time specificity that we can get into, but it emerges because of the transformation in the colonial project. So this 18th century is a period in which Europe is engaged in a global colonial enterprise, but the colonial enterprise is now less about just creating various kinds of trading networks, but about the material reproduction of what you can think of as European societies in the non-European world. And that ends up requiring two pretty profound things. One, it requires land, so you have to expropriate land. This is the stuff that, that Cheryl was talking about in order to be able to create um, uh, white societies in the non-white world. And it also requires labor, but it requires labor that's coerced so that those that are actually enjoying the benefits of colonization aren't degraded through coerced run free labor. And this is the development of various complex systems of enslaved labor management. What, what you can immediately note here is that there's a clear materialism to his argument, but it's a materialism that's able to actually think of race as something that's an ongoing set of processes that operate distinctly in different settings, but that are tied to these foundational material terms. What he is effectively developing, I think, is a continuation of a rich tradition of black Marxism that you might associate with, like, with Eric Williams and Du Bois, and more recently uh, with Cedric Robinson, and that is emphasizing, again, the multiplicity of different kinds of regimes of racial management and the ways in which they're constructed at a particular time and they serve particular types of ends. And he's also highlighting, this is a key point for him, that racialization takes place at different moments in time in different spaces because they're tied, they're intensified by the actual sort of interaction of social spaces by different groups. So when, when you have white colonial actors that are confronting either indigenous populations or enslaved um, populations, that it's that confrontation that produces complex systems of racialization. So this is why racialization explodes, for example, in the post-Civil War period in the context of Jim Crow. So it's an argument that can make sense of difference, that can make sense of the plurality of regimes across time and even within different locations, that isn't thinking in national boundaries but has an account of the local and the, the variety of local specificities that emerge. So that's one really profound contribution, the synthesis of these two positions. The second connects to the first, which is that there's a lot of debate about what's the relationship between race and what you might think of as universalism. And there's a kind of classic way in which American liberal scholars talk about this, which is American liberalism is the story of a set of universal commitments, the Declaration of Independence. And then race ends up being this strange kind of atavistic phenomenon. Like, how is it that we have the persistence of exclusion and illiberalism despite the liberal story of rights? And why is it that these two things are happening at similar times? And it's the idea that these are basically like incoherent, they can't be connected to the extent that they're connected, maybe race is some kind of past, you know, traditional holdover. Then there's arguments about, well, no, these are mutually constituted. And you can get this with theorists like 
um, Bali Bar with Derrida. And the thought here is that the reason why they're mutually, and, um, and others, that the reason why they're mutually constituted is because universalism always has its own necessary remainder. And race is kind of the language of remainder. But notice even this argument about mutual constitution, not only is it operating at like 30,000 feet above the ground, it has no way of articulating the way in which race can at sometimes be a language of universalism and it sometimes can be a language of, of like fixity and hierarchy. Like why is it that it's shifting? You know, it's the, what's the protean quality of race and racial formation even in the theoretical arguments when we think about like liberal universality? And here what, what Patrick does is he says, and this is in a way the way how it's a continuation of what I was describing as like Afro pessimist traditions or the idea of constitutive anti-blackness. He says that there's something foundational to Enlightenment thinking, and it's the way in which Enlightenment thinking is both connected to a set of universal aspirations that is necessarily about progress, improvement, and change, but it's also connected to the sciences, and to the natural sciences in particular. And here the connection to the natural sciences is about fixity, about permanence, about order that's established through an understanding of the world and its phenomena. And what happens in the, in the colonial encounter, in the process of racialization, is that race becomes a way of being able to talk both in terms of improvement and change, universalism, and in terms of fixity. And it's why, in some settings, race is a category that he calls soluble. In other words, it's something that allows different kinds of communities to be bound together in a single community. In other settings, it's something that he describes as insoluble. So why is it that we can have both fixity and change at the same time? And he does this concretely through five incredible comparative case studies. So that leads to the third thing that I think is a profound contribution of the book, and it's those five case studies. This is a work in global comparative theory. It's a book of theory. And it's a book of theory that allows us to see the variety of racial formations that take place across the world, trans, transnationally as well as transhistorically, and also the multiplicity of forms of racialization that take place. Now this is, on the one hand, I think it's just it's a, it's like a great work of scholarship. It's a model for students that are interested in these questions. How do you do multi-site analysis that's, that focuses on Brazil, Australia, the US, Europe, Israel, Palestine, <coughs> all at once? But I also think what it, what it is, it's a, it's a reflection on what had been at this point a 20-year debate about settler colonial studies as a field and as an analytical concept. And here, I think, is you know, one of the, the important implications of the work. Now, the classic critique that emerged of Patrick's work and of the field of settler colonialism was a critique of settler colonialism as monocausal. In other words, you take this idea of invasion as structure, not event, and you take it to its logical conclusion, then all you see is settler colonialism. And precisely because all you see is settler colonialism, there's no space for contingency, for disagreement. And similarly, in a way that you know, people criticize Af like Afro-pessimist ideas, there's no space for agency, uh, eruptive alternatives, and indeed the voice of <clears throat> indigenous um, and enslaved populations as well. And on top of that, one of the criticisms that Patrick got in particular was that the intensity of the monocausality is underscored by the centrality of the Australian example. 
that there's a way in which the Australian example is being used, it's extracted from Australia and it's applied globally to all these other examples, and you have an extreme version of the history that has no place for change, possibility, improvement. And I think what Patrick was doing through the multi-site investigation, and indeed by the fact that settler colonialism, though it's a central concept in the book, is not in the title, it's Traces of History, Elementary Structures of Race, is to make settler colonialism a tool that's pliable. Now, this had always been the case, so I, I mentioned this in the morning, that in a way the criticism, I think, has just been unfair, because we can think of settler colonialism the way we might think of capitalism, of imperialism, of neoliberalism, of white supremacy. The whole point of these concept, concepts is that they make complex plural relations more simplified so that you have some kind of analytical purchase. And this can be done well or can be done more poorly. But what Patrick was doing here is by focusing on racial formation in all of its variety and by locating different forms of racial formation even within particular communities for distinct populations and then telling a story that's both trans-historical and comparative was to highlight not just complexity but what he calls the incompleteness of racial formation. Racial formation is never actually defined in advance. It's always defined through those negotiations, exchanges, conflicts that take place at sites of shared social space. And it's a continuous, ongoing process that never sets the terms. And so it means that by necessity, it's a site of struggle and resistance as well. And so the story of racial formation is a story of, of struggle against ongoing forms of oppression. And in this way, I think, the book is an effort to not just extend the settler colonial frame, but to think critically about how to make settler colonialism a pliable tool for making sense of social struggle. And it leads to the fourth point, which is, it's a remarkable book on just the question of what non-white solidarity can and should look like. So again, this has come up, and Cheryl was making this point, that a central insight in the book, and it's a really simple insight once you understand it or see it, is this thought that there's a profound difference between what it means to be indigenous and what it means to be um, black within the American context or in, in potentially in other contexts as well, but let's say within the American context. And this is the idea that indigenous peoples are independent political communities that are on the same landmass as an expropriative um, European settler enterprise. And so inclusion as an equal citizen for an indigenous person is the equivalent of social death. It's the elimination of that separate political community. It's the elimination of the possibility of self-determination. While for African Americans, precisely because of the ways in which enslaved labor is excluded from the body politic, assimilation as an equal citizen can be a form of freedom. And so there's a question about how do you negotiate this difference? And so a large part of what the book is thinking through is how is it that communities who are differentially oppressed and whose oppression can be read by the other community as a form of complicity, how is it that they can actually work collaboratively together? But also, how is it, through their difference, they can create the potential for transcending the terms of what amounts to liberal inclusion and liberal citizenship? And it's why he ends the book with a kind of moment of optimism, which is, we can have a politics that doesn't collapse into a people of color blindness, that understands difference, but sees that difference as a way of collectively confronting the same historical phenomenon, and that's the phenomenon of colonialism, 
that again is how uh, you know is foundationally tied to race, and it's the ways in which these processes speak. Um, 